newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk, full the press, full the press, extra, extra read all The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis with some veteran journalists and an opportunity for us to talk about what's going on in the news media. Dr. Alan Shartok is here, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist, and Barbara Lombardo, a formerly executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record, and I'm Rex Smith, formerly editor of the Times Union, now at the Upstate American, that's me. Dr. Shartok, here's a, an interesting little tidbit. How do you feel about Twitter attaching a label saying that NPR and BBC are state-affiliated media? Well, Rex, it's a put-down. There's no question, because basically, dare I say it, they're saying you're all a bunch of whores. Hmm. And, um, uh, you know, you have to follow the lead of the people who are pulling the marionette strings. And so it's a dangerous label to have attached to you. And uh, it has prompted Twitter, even though Twitter changed and then said, well, government-funded media. <laughs> even so, what's the difference? NPR has quit Twitter. That bother you at all? Is there a difference between the word prostitute and whore? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I don't know if you can use those words, you know, on the air, but words have meanings. Yeah. If you say you're in some way dependent on your masters, it doesn't speak well for you, does it? Does not. Rosemary Barber, are either of you uh, using Twitter still? No, I quit the minute Elon Musk took over. Mm. Do you really believe it's breaking even as he alleged, but without any ledger books to back him up this week? I, well, he's he's admitted that it's he thinks it's worth half of what he paid for it. Now it's worth twenty billion. He paid forty four, and I'd be surprised if it's even or, worth that. I, I I occasionally still use Twitter. I will look at it. I want to see what some of the people who I respect are saying on it. Tweeting. And there are sometimes links to things that I might want to read, but I don't use it nearly, nearly as much as I used to. I don't try to uh, promote things on Twitter. How come? I think that it's become a largely internal, over the last few years, internal system for journalists to talk to each other more than reaching the public that we want to reach. I'm curious, Alan, about how you plan to handle this Twitter thing for WAMC. Are you going to stay with Twitter, not stay with Twitter, and why? I try never to make a decision until I absolutely have to. And right now, I think things seem to be fine, but there may be indications from the Twitter people or from others that it may be time to move along. I'd love to hear what Rosemary has to say about this because she's so knowledgeable. I think that Twitter remains useful to some people who talk to a group, a subgroup. Do not listen to Elon Musk pontificate over it, and they continue to use it. But I'd like to see everybody get off of it. I think it's turned into his little propaganda feed. I hate reading about him. And I hope he's having a good time because he spent a boatload of money to buy that. He, well, he's um, also such an impulsive so, person. Yeah. He's an irresponsible, There's no business plan. Person. There's 
Didn't you talk about changing this government-funded label to publicly funded label? It doesn't make any and difference. The whole label thing is, is well, a ridiculous right, and waste the verifications of time. is ridiculous. Well, verifications there's lack thereof. They're uh, meaningless. There goes my blue check mark. You know, I've stopped tweeting because I'm just— Well, he's uh, not uh, distributing anything from Substack anymore, which affects you. Right. But what he did was well, he, he picked a whole bunch of journalists— and then fed all of the Twitter files, all of the records and email of the previous company to these guys who are going to expose the intertwined workings of government and media. And they came out with a whole bunch of stuff, which, frankly, I've tried to read and do not understand the point of. Has not got a lot of traction. And then this week, he just, like, dumped Substack, which threw many of those, like Matt Tabby, out of work. It makes no sense what he's doing to me. Right. Well, Tabby is a cool cat. and um... Well, he was. I'm not sure now. Oh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand what he's doing. I, I I think he's looking. You, I think he was looking for volume. He's looking for numbers. Yeah, I was. I was impressed. Alan, a cool cat. You know, you were. You're very much with it in the jazz age, right? Well, whenever, whenever I'm around you, Rex, it propels me to new heights. Well, Twitter, Twitter was an amazing and fantastic thing. It could change and did change things. Yeah. Around the world because it, it was a means of and could still be a means of communicating all over the world. Well, now the difficulty is that it was actually adopted as a major channel for communication. Government officials used Twitter to make announcements. The president's Twitter feed became a publicly accessible channel under freedom of information law requests. So this is the media project. The question is, how is media affected directly by Twitter? Well, because Twitter was a mode of distribution of content. It is less so now as people are backing away from it, as news organizations are not. As a vehicle, in my newsroom, when I was the editor of the Times Union, we used Twitter extensively to push out our content. And it was very useful. It was also good because you could get immediate feedback from people. The great thing about Twitter is people see it, respond. You can adjust things as the word comes back to you as to what's real. It's also responsible for a whole lot of lazy journalism, a lot of it on Trump, where he would put out any little thought, misspelled, middle-of-the-night ranting, and journalists easily could pick that up and turn it into a story. And a lot of misinformation. Instead of real reporting. Misinformation that people would retweet without realizing that what they're retweeting Mm -hmm. Sometimes with realizing, sometimes without realizing that what they were were retweeting was not even true. So this is the media project. Is the media... um, Am I in the right place? (laughs) Oh, is that where we are? (laughs) I get it. So is the media subsumed in a way that, you know, it shouldn't have gone in that direction? I know that that's a messed up thought, but... Well, the difficulty is you have to use digital platforms to get your content out there because what else do you do? How else do you get content out in a digital age? You use Facebook and Twitter and whatever other opportunities are out there. Email newsletters are now very popular. You know, I get one from the Daily Gazette and I get like three a day from the Times Union and the New York Times constantly, the Washington Post. That's how we're distributing content these days. So we are the media project. Uh, He keeps repeating that, so we're just to be sure we know where we are. So so the (laughs) the follow-up question is, since we have that name, has the concept of what media is, has it changed? Yes, it's video games right now for a whole chunk of the population. Interestingly, the documents that have been released that reveal secrets, the Pentagon leaks, went out on a game channel. That shows how potent gaming channels are these days. So, yeah, gaming is part of the media. 
But uh, if it weren't the gaming channel, it would be something else, wouldn't it? However people communicate, you know, that's yeah. journalism needs to be where people are. It needs to be accessible to people on whatever platform they're using. So is it Instagram now that mainstream no. news sources would be using or what? For well, to to TikTok until the government bans it. <laughs> But you should access readers and consumers of news however you can, I think. I think it's good for us to make use of it. One of the great things about a Twitter feed is that you could actually push out a little piece of a story and then people could actually access the whole story. You know, you're sort of titillated by what you read and by in your 280-character feed, and then you get the full story out. So how much of news is titillation? Well, I don't know. There's some. <laughs> There's a lot of content that is not, uh, you know, is not of great substance, but we there's an awful lot of great content out there. So, for example, this explosive story on Clarence Thomas, which got a lot of attention over the past week, came about because a, a trio of ProPublica reporters, now that's a not-for-profit newsroom, you know, the first big independent not-for-profit newsroom. Which uh, we have discussed many times, the concept of the coming of not-for-profit into our mainstream. Right. The reporters came across a bit of a story and pumped it out after spending a lot of time. The element of this that interests me is the story that is the story we're talking about is Clarence Thomas has taken over 20 years a lot of trips as gratuities basically from a billionaire right-wing political supporter, a billionaire named Harlan Crow. That story came out because these reporters just kept going. As one of the reporters said, we started grinding. And the great news is that there are still, to your point, Alan, your question about titillation, there are still serious news organizations out there like ProPublica who are willing to put in the time to develop this kind of important story. One of the things I loved about that story is that it starts with the curiosity of journalists. They don't necessarily know, unless somebody maybe tipped them off that wasn't anything I'd read about, that, hey, you ought to start looking in this. But they're looking at records, which is the heart of journalism investigative reporting. They have an idea that they might find something, they might not. And then you have a news organization that is enabling them to take the time that it takes to go through records, try to interview people, try to document information. And what they found was really, I think, explosive and important for the public to know. But the interesting element is also that in a news organization like ProPublica, where they are freed from the requirement of producing a certain number of stories, you know, there is the element that they can spend time on it. When I worked for a big newsroom, I spent 11 months on one story with my partner. So, you know, two reporters basically peeled off for a year is something you can do if you're a rich news organization. That's very hard to find these days uh, because the the economics of journalism are such that you just can't usually It was, it was never easy to find that ever in the history of journalism. Investigative reporting like that has always been very rare, a few hundred at most pieces in any given year. What I found interesting about the story is the impact or lack thereof. Clarence Thomas did not even bother to respond to the journalists until after the story came out. There was an uproar, and then it was like, this means nothing. I talked to my friends, and they all said I'm fine. <laughs> and, um, and that appears to be enough to satisfy Apparently. many members of Congress and, and yeah. the judiciary. John Roberts certainly isn't doing anything, even with his court threatening to go down as the corrupt court. So what's the impact of journalism now? That was a spectacular reporting. It was far more than records. They went all over the world to talk to, like, 
workers on a yacht and people working in the tourist industry in Indonesia. I mean, imagine tracking down these people, getting to speak to them in languages not your own. There's a tremendous amount of work and money that went into it. And I ask, for what? For what? Because the government is not picking up on this. Yeah, I mean, investigative reporting has always worked when bad things are exposed and then officials take over and they do their part. That happened in Watergate. That's why Watergate was so spectacular. Aside from what uh, the Washington Post did, it was the work of Republican, mostly Republican leaders in, in Congress. That element is missing in our society right now. Because there's no shame anymore? That's part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, Trump made it perfectly okay to say, no, she's got a horse face. She's not my type. I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And we laugh and say, ho, 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 that guy. We're not all refreshing. laughing. I didn't laugh. Isn't he refreshing? I thought it was bad news. Well, Um, we haven't seemed to have learned an awful lot, or I shouldn't say we necessarily, because I don't mean to suggest that everybody is doing this. But the fact is, we have now Donald Trump sitting down with Tucker Carlson, with Sean Hannity, and they're letting him just say whatever he wants to outrageous stuff that goes on Fox News. And it's very difficult, even aside from Fox News, you're still seeing a lot of attention. I was shocked that uh, that CNN aired the entirety of Donald Trump's speech after he was indicted when he went back down to uh, Florida. His rally. His rally. Certainly wasn't an apology. Right. CNN, nevertheless, carried it all live. CNN learned its lesson, didn't they? (laughs) How so? (laughs) I'm being slightly facetious because they are giving Trump the same type, or they were for that, and they're still talking about him endlessly again, giving him the same type of free publicity that helps spread his word, and I think exposure is power. So while Tucker Carlson in private said he hates Trump passionately, he believes Trump is a destroyer. He referred to him as a demonic force. As a president, he was a disaster, a politician whose behavior after losing the 2020 election was disgusting. Those are the words of Tucker Carlson. But he goes on the air and, and plays a his different butt. character. Well, this week he had um, Trump on, Carlson yeah, had Trump disgusting. on, to talk about how Biden was responsible for blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, which a U.N. investigation says, no, it was a group supportive of the Ukrainians. It's really dangerous. It spreads propaganda to a group we already know, Fox News readers, listeners, want to hear good things about Trump and bad things about Biden. It's just, it's propaganda. I'm so flummoxed about how a person can privately, and it became public, say those horrible things about how he can't wait to not have to have Trump around anymore. And then it's just being so I want deferential. To you... Deferential. Thank you for helping me that <laughs> publishable. You know, it is partly, though, because that audience, the Fox News audience, doesn't know about what Tucker Carlson said because Fox is not airing information about its own lawsuit, about the Dominion lawsuit that is getting underway as we speak. Well, uh, Rex, you've always had a problem with Fox. Me too, but our audience deserves your best. And the question is, what is it about Fox that you think is basically so, for want of a better word, evil? They lie. (laughs) No other news organization behaves this way. But part of the way that they lie is they lie by omission. So get this fact uh, that was reported by Reliable Sources Newsletter, which is a CNN function. It's always telling when Fox News, about what Fox News doesn't air. So here's something. This enormous decision by the federal judge, Kaczmarek, in Texas that attempted to withdraw mifepristone from the marketplace, the abortion Mm -hmm. drug. The right-wing talk channel, Fox, devoted only 27 minutes to that story. 
from April 7th to 10th, those first days when that story came out, 27 minutes, whereas MSNBC devoted seven hours and 57 minutes, CNN devoted seven hours and four minutes over those several days, 27 minutes. So Fox News doesn't want to talk about that because the issue of withdrawing abortion from pills from the marketplace is not popular. For the sake of argument, mm -hmm. perhaps that could be argued that MSNBC talked about it too much because they have an anti-abortion bias. Yeah, you could. You well, could I, I agree. Not that they have an anti-abortion or pro-abortion bias, but that it should be more than 27 minutes without a question and a hell of a lot less than seven <laughs> hours. Yeah. Like, really? Yeah. I mean, it's I'm not a final know. decision, so. Yeah, but it could be a huge thing. For I mean, never before has a federal judge said that a drug that's been approved for 20 years has to be taken off the market because of the judge's own bias. The judge is substituting yeah. his opinion for that of the medical experts who were given this task by Congress. Congress delegated the responsibility to the Food and Drug Administration. And now this federal judge appointed by Donald Trump, who's been an anti-abortion activist, has decided that he's going to make the decision. Well, I mean, the even FDA. the very, very conservative appeals court has said, judge, back off. The yeah. statute of limitation was over years ago. <laughs> so it was it was a bad ruling. And of course, there is something called the separation of powers, but courts. And uh, I think that when you see rulings like this, all of that comes into some question. No. Absolutely. And we're looking at this in the case of the Dominion lawsuit against Fox, where there is a question as to whether some material has been withheld by Fox as a business decision. Here we have a news organization, Fox News, quote unquote, that is supposedly dedicated to getting information to people, which is withholding information even from a judge probing its decision making. And I've always been uncomfortable with the idea of how news organizations handle themselves when the business side of their operation is imperiled. It's a different standard that they apply in this case than what they would apply in terms of what information in their own argument that they would want to get information out to people. Wow, that's a long and convoluted way of saying they lied and they <laughs> did it in front of a judge who has their future at stake. What a dumb move. And yeah. they're still lying. They argued at the same time, oh, we didn't know. We didn't know. And he didn't know. He didn't know he was an officer on Fox News. At the same time that another lawyer for them is saying all of our SEC filings have him as an officer of Fox News, so we did disclose it. Those two things conflict, and the judge is not stupid. Right. I'm so glad this is going to trial. Well, <laughs> well, if he's not stupid, then what's up? They really underestimated both Dominion, and they underestimated the judge, and they thought that they had more protection under the First Amendment than they really do. Mm -hmm. I think this is going to go, I think it's going to go against them, if I had to guess now, and then it'll end up with the Supreme Court, which will slap Fox on the wrist and then just rip the hell out of the libel laws so all the rest of us suffer. I don't know. I wonder if they will. I wonder if the other judges will go along with Clarence Thomas and Alito, who were, no, it's uh, Gorsuch, isn't it, who it's wants Gorsuch. to. And you know Alito's in the group, too, uh, yeah, so that's, that's true. three out of the six that's already. Three. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Amy's going to protect us? I don't think so, Rex. No. It's just that I think that there will be some recognition by even the conservative judges that the standard set by Times v. Sullivan protects their right-wing media as much as it does the mainstream media, mm. the people who really care about these issues. As Rosemary has made this point, losing the Sullivan protection, that is that 
uh, you have to demonstrate uh, actual malice or reckless disregard for the truth in order to sustain. Uh, it allows you to make liability. a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. And but it is more likely that you're going to see sloppy mistakes like that Correct. on the uh, sloppy right wing channels. The, the the one thing is that the case it gets now so egregiously against Fox, they're, they're ruining themselves, that the Supreme Court could just say this isn't the case to decide the First Amendment and just not take it. And a, a conviction could stand if it, if it went to that. Or Fox could always settle, too. You can never rule that out. If you have thoughts on all of this, folks, media at WAMC.org is uh, where you send in for your, your thoughts to us. We would not mind hearing from you. Rosemary Armeo is who you just heard, Barbara Lombardo, Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith, and we are pleased to have you here with us. Uh, we need to pay some attention to the detention of the Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gershkovich, which is tragic. The State Department is finally stepping forward and saying, well, he's been wrongfully detained, which is a term that gives this some, some weight. But what else could be done to protect journalists? Or do we just use this as an example of saying, well, reporting can be dangerous? It can be dangerous, but my goodness, I'm, I'm just shocked to think that this young man who was reporting in Russia and was telling his friends, oh, I'm loving the work that I'm doing, uh, is actually facing many years in a Russian prison. I don't know what else can be done to kind of protect journalists in this situation. Everybody is sitting here with their mouths closed because we don't know what can be done. We don't. Yeah, I guess that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, journalism, you get to a certain stage where the story is worth risking your life for, and that's what he did. And I commend that. I don't think there's a protection for it. He was reporting on national security and military issues in Russia where the dictator has said, if you even say this is a war, we're going to put you in jail. He knew the risk. Yeah. And so I think that the best thing that can happen is what just did happen with the designation of the uh, wrongfully detained because it gives the U.S. government authority to oh, try to help them out. But yeah, help. it's it's frightening. And we talked about the Clarence Thomas story and that so a big story lands and is anything going to happen? And if they weren't reporting on that, we wouldn't even know about it. And then you look at all the journalists who are risking their lives. Yeah. And we would not know what was going on mm -hmm. in these Both other you and Rosemary. I'm sorry, sorry for interrupting. Yeah, I am. But you and Rosemary both use the word risk. And journalism involves itself in a lot of risk. You've all been editors. You've all been reporters. You know that reporters that face risk are often punished, and it isn't good. So what do you do about assessing risk if you're a reporter or an editor? You try as best you can to avoid situations where you're going to get into trouble. I, I haven't had a lot of experience in foreign countries. I was reporting in Central America in El Salvador when there were roadblocks. And so you charter a little plane to fly you over the roadblock so you right. don't get yourself in that situation. But I've heard editors say to reporters, we don't want you to put yourself at risk. You need to protect yourself, which is a good thought. But on the other hand, the editors are also saying, yeah, but can you get that story? Can you get that yeah, story? Yeah. And how does that change from venue to venue, in it's, other words? It's something in the reporters. Yeah. I have worked with those reporters who yeah. risked their life and have gone to jail. And uh, yes, the, the editing 101 rule is don't risk your life. No story is worth your life. But the journalists frequently make the decision, and I respect them mightily for it, that it is worth their life. Yeah, luckily for us, and I mean yeah. us as citizens of the world, 
U.S. citizens and citizens of the world that there are people willing to do that. There was a story that our producer shared with us of a Washington Post reporter who was originally a sports reporter and has now been covering the war in in Ukraine. And she was in Russia and she's in Ukraine and she's risked her life and she is Mm -hmm. willing to continue to do that. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. One final thing before we go today, and that is a new survey by Pew Research showing that there is a significant gender change in what beats uh, reporters have. That is 83 percent of sports reporters are men, whereas on the health side, it's like two to one uh, health reporting is done why, by women. Why did that not sound like news? <laughs> you said something <laughs> new. Reaction. It's like I don't know. Duh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's, it, it's interesting that we're still at a point. You know, two thirds of the people uh, graduating from both undergraduate and graduate schools of journalism are women now. But there still is a gender bias in the beats that people are assigned. And so, what Rex or the rest of the panel do you see as the great danger here? I don't actually. Who says it has to be fifty-fifty? I was was actually, I thought it was pretty great that the political coverage is getting more and more equally divided. Uh, War coverage, there's lots of women reporters now. Okay, sports is still out, but there's 20%, more than 20% are women. That's a hell of a lot better than when we started. And we're doing better on gendered equity than we are on race diversity, which is still overwhelmingly white. That's a big problem, so a few but years, not gender. So a few years ago, there was great to do over women coming into male-dominated uh, sports rooms mm-hmm. um, and, quote, towels dropping all over the place. Oh, yeah, and, women seeing naked men. Whoa. <laughs> Well, not can't every- handle it. <laughs> and it did make uh, quite a difference. The women who said, I'm plunging forward, the, the locker rooms who initially were close to them had to open up about 40 years ago, right? But that has really changed the dynamic. The, the- it's made it more professional. More Why do we have to go in and talk to the athletes when they're dressing? It's nuts that that was even an, an issue. And sports coverage is still Well, because up. that may be where they're more willing but, to but talk on to bro- you. In broadcast, it seems like there's a lot more women doing sports. Yeah. Well, that's a different matter, I think, that we might have to take up in another show. Well, give us a hint. Well, broadcasting is about show business, you know, with all due respect to sports coverage on television. and uh, I know what due respect means. Yeah. (laughs) Sports reporting is still messed up. They can't figure out whether to cover their game or their economics and social life. The Tiger Woods is a perfect example to me of bad coverage. We still don't have it right, male or female. And that's the end of the time we have. Uh, so we're uh, we're going to have to ask you folks to come back next week for more. Alan Shartok, Rosemayer Mayo, Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. With gratitude to our producer Dave Gustina and to you folks for joining us this week on the Media Project. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage, tingling newspaper guild, got a free new world to build, meet the people. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our executive producer is Alan Shartong. This week's projectors include WAMC's Alan Shartong, former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith, Rosemary Armeo, investigative journalist and adjunct professor at RPI in New Albany, and Barbara Lombardo former editor of the Saratogian and an adjunct journalism professor at UAlbany. This is program number 1663. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 
Lawyers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.